It's time for the 7th Avenue Project online at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello and welcome, everybody, to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Picard, what's the show about today? This is about the future of humanity. Whoa, get a hold of yourself there. But yes, he's right. The show is about the future of humanity, the evolutionary future, to be precise. I mean, we know where our species came from. Right. But where in the world are we headed? Are we going to continue our rise from apedom, become even nobler in reason, a race of super-intelligent seraphim, maybe, as some sci-fi stories imagine? Or perhaps the dystopian alternative, a bunch of machine-fed simpletons infantilized by our own technology. Or yet a third possibility that some people have suggested, that we aren't going anywhere at all, that Homo sapiens ain't getting any more or less sapient, but have entered a kind of holding pattern. Modern life has removed all the pressures that used to drive natural selection, you know, the whole struggle for survival bit. And so evolution has more or less ground to a halt, in the biological sense at least. Well, I could keep spinning out plausible-sounding scenarios like those, uninformed by actual science. Or, here's a notion, I could ask a bona fide expert. Barry Sinervo is a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UC Santa Cruz. And he's been on this show often enough, I think, to qualify as our house evolutionist. He talked to us uh, the first time in 2010 to discuss some fascinating genetic gamesmanship that he's discovered among certain kinds of lizards. They play a version of the old rock-paper-scissors game over generations. And then he was back in uh, the same year to present some very alarming evidence that lizard populations around the globe are disappearing due to rising temperatures, that is, rapid global warming. That work by Barry and his colleagues got worldwide attention and is still ongoing, and we're going to get a status report on that at the end of this hour. But uh, aside from reptiles, Barry Sinervo is also quite interested in our own species, and he's given some serious thought to human evolution and what's in store for us. He's going to share those thoughts with us today. So, Barry, it's good to have you back again. Well, thanks very much, Robert. Happy New Year. And I noticed that both you and I have evolved in the last two years since we sat down together. Oh, yes. In what way? <laughs> in all kinds of ways we probably in, don't want to talk our, about. In our thinking, hopefully. <laughs> I thought maybe we'd start today uh, as we get into this question of whether really our species, Homo sapiens, is evolving, and if so, in what ways, by just starting with sort of a little refresher course on how natural selection and other forms of selection take place? Sure. If you think about evolution, it's actually more than just natural selection. That's like one of the four biggies. The others are things like um, mutations, right, and migration. And the final one, which is the most interesting for humans, is non-random mating, which drives a lot of the evolution that we see. So natural selection is just one small part of the puzzle. Well, let's take it uh, puzzle piece by puzzle piece. So let's start with natural selection, which is the one that most people think of. And I think um, this is more than just a straw man. I think this is a very common idea that it's just survival of the fittest. 
Yeah, that is pretty much a caricature of the way natural selection takes place. It's not about survival, um, especially in the present day. It's really about survival and reproduction. And it's not about those two things with respect to the environment at large. It's actually with respect to your social environment. The social environment turns out to be the most powerful force of selection. And that's likely been the case for humans. And it's been an ever-escalating um, force over the eons that has driven us to these uh, pinnacles of intelligence. So the story that we like to go back to, which is that we live uh, or or did live in a state of nature where the weak were weeded out, you know, they died off, they were killed off. And again, only the fittest survived in this really rough proving ground that was nature. Now, that was sort of the case long ago, yeah? That's was the case long ago. And when you think about what's happening in the world today, or what happened in the last hundred years, you realize that there was an awful lot of human death and suffering that occurred at the hands of other humans from war. And that's likely to have had a very strong selective component to it. A selective component. Yeah, that's natural selection is operating on differences among individuals. And some of it could be kind of um, just these random differences that are favored by the process of natural selection, but others could actually be targeted by one racial group against another, say, which is actually what's been happening on and off again over the course of the last century with respect to genocide. So when you have one group that differs in their um, background or genetic makeup targeting another group and actually leading to whole-scale slaughter of that group, that generates a very powerful effect. So to pick a gruesome example from recent history, uh, the genocide in Rwanda, the Hutus, you know, although there's a long history of back and forth atrocities, the Hutus in this case attacked Tutsis. The Hutus, and again, I, I I'm, imagine there's a lot of overgeneralization here, but they're depicted as shorter and stockier, Tutsis as taller and thinner. And when Hutus killed off a lot of Tutsis, we might expect the overall population to be stockier afterwards. It would it would change its composition, not just in stature, but any other subtle genetic difference that occurred. Now, most people think that the genetic differences among humans are generally fairly small, and that's probably true across the board. But there are actually really interesting regional differences that, that are genetically based, and, and those generate a force of natural selection. But in this case, it's a special form of natural selection, which we call social selection. Right. This is human beings doing all the selecting, not uh, predators, not other species, not disease, not weather, not, you know, geography or geology, those kinds of natural forces. Yeah. This is us. That's right. Acting now, on ourselves. Now, when we're talking about humans and even other animals, we have to be careful about what is the source of the differences between two groups. And much of the differences in humans are going to be simply cultural. So we actually have two ways of partitioning that. Um, we say that there's the biological evolution that occurs and the cultural evolution because, you know, it's the ideas, the religion, the language, the uh, all these other things, the customs that people are picking out, uh, discriminating on the basis of that in the ultimate form of discrimination mm. would be genocide. Mm -hmm. And then there are the subtle genetic differences that may or may not contribute to any of those latter things that I talked about. Um, and the subtle genetic differences that might have been important, say, for local adaptation, the color or pigment of someone's skin or 
how much vitamin D they get in a, on, on the flip side of that, you know, in a northern climate. So all of those things, we, we recognize that there are some interesting genetic differences among humans, not really in terms of any of the um, really important things that we think about, you know, in terms of the way humans behave and the like, but those are generally driven by cultural differences. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to focus on, you know, genetic evolution in this conversation. Cultural evolution is a whole different That's right. Thing. That's why I brought it up so we can actually just narrow down this really interesting focus that we have and kind of misconceptions that people have about the process of natural selection, especially when humans are involved. So when we talk about natural selection, what we mean is forces that distinguish between the survival rate and reproduction rate of certain genes, right? That's right. And if certain people... Uh, manage to reproduce and have a lot of offspring, and those offspring have a lot of offspring, and so on down the line, the genes they carry will get more common. That's right. In the absence of, you know, any mortality, let's say everybody died at the age of 80, every single one, and everybody had exactly two kids, everybody on the planet, then there would not necessarily be any force of natural selection because there's no differences in survival or reproduction. So under those extreme conditions which we've never seen, nor will we be likely to see that, would you have no natural selection? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, we've been talking natural selection, and then you also introduced the idea of social selection, which operates similarly to natural selection, but it's mediated by human beings, right? Yes, it's like humans against other humans in many interesting ways. It doesn't have to be negative. In fact, one of the ways in which I think humans are really different than other animals is that we have achieved a level of cooperation that's extraordinary. And I think that's in a large measure due to the kinds of interesting dynamics that humans have evolved over evolutionary time by some individuals selecting other individuals with which they can cooperate at a very high rate. And those two individuals are protected you know, in their cooperation from other cheats in the system. And that's actually some of the ideas that Bob Trivers was really influential in developing earlier on, the idea of this altruism and the evolution of altruism and reciprocal altruism and cooperation. You're talking about the, the very influential evolutionary biologist Robert Trivers. Yeah, that's right. And, and uh, that aspect of social selection can be very negative or it can be quite positive in the case of humans. Um, so it's really important to consider that up against the sort of natural selection that, that's the environment, say, selecting for certain attributes that humans carry and pass on to their children. Now, I don't want to lose our thread. We were going to march our way through the four main forces at work in evolution and human evolution that you mentioned. But I do want to clarify one thing you said a moment ago. You talked about skin color and vitamin D. Um, you're talking about the fact that uh, in hotter, sunnier climes, uh, people tend to have darker skin, more melanin to protect themselves from the sun. Yeah. But as people spread northward toward areas that had less sunlight, they lost that pigmentation because they needed, to they needed to absorb more of that scarce sunlight to produce vitamin D. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, first force at work in human evolution is natural selection. And again, this is the, uh, the differential survival and reproduction of certain genes you know, people carrying those genes, and thus the genes are propagated through the population, and thus certain traits become more common or less common, right? Yeah. So that's number one. What's number two? Number two on the list is um, mutation. So mutation's important because variation has to be created for there to be a constant click to evolutionary progress. 
um, adaptation taking place in response to environments. If you didn't have mutation, natural selection would essentially grind to a halt as it essentially fixed everything as far as it could go. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, you know, just to cite one of millions of examples, my blue eyes are a mutation, or they, they're the result of a, a mutation. I believe it's now thought to be, oh, maybe 10,000 years ago that the first blue-eyed mutation occurred and started spreading through the otherwise brown-eyed population. And these mutations, by the way, occur as a result of little sort of chemical accidents in the genome, right? Yeah, so so in the DNA, there's like an alphabet mm-hmm. that essentially can mutate. Mm-hmm. And so there's just a change in one element of that alphabet, like right. one letter. So changing from uh, a word like um, pop to pot. <laughs> just a simple, difference. simple change. But change it can have letter. a huge change like in your eye color. Right, and this can happen as a result of Oh, a chemical, you know, like a carcinogen getting in there, what they call mutagen, a chemical that gets in there and knocks one of these letters, you know, a little bit and makes it into a different letter, or maybe a cosmic ray or some form of radiation. Yeah, any radiation tends to have that effect on DNA. And just mistakes that um, the cells themselves make when dividing, yeah, sometimes? uh, They do. Now, that's not important if it's just in our bodies. It's really important when it's in our our cell lines that lead to sperm or eggs. Exactly, because then, of course, it gets transmitted to the offspring and on down the line. In some cases, uh, these mutations are deadly and the organism dies off, and that mutation is pretty much a dead end. In some cases, it's sort of neutral, doesn't have a positive or negative effect, and it just sort of drifts through the population maybe, you know, through your descendants. But in some cases... It's really great. Oh, it's a beneficial mutation. Yeah, right, for right. Sure. You know, good example. It's been a warm period in Earth's history, but now it's starting to get cold. It's an ice age. And a mutation pops up among these naked elephants that causes them to be hairy. Well, the dude who gets that mutation is in good shape for the coming ice age. And voila, his descendants become the woolly mammoth, perhaps. That's right. And the woolly mammoth spreads and thrives through the tundra and the taiga <laughs> and flourishes. Until the end of the Ice Age. <laughs> then, he's, right? then he's too Then hairy. he's in trouble because he's cooking and hot. <laughs> so it goes the other way. Uh, then the guy with the mutation for uh, hairlessness is in good shape. That's right. So even in an organism like um, the woolly mammoth, you might actually see a little ebb and flow, right? Backwards and forwards at, over the course of glacial cycles. So who would win in a fight, a mastodon or a woolly mammoth? Ooh, I don't know. You're pitting North America against Europe. <laughs> that's. I think Mammothus was bigger. Uh, which so, is? So that's the mammoth. Mastodon? Oh, that's the mammoth. Mammoth, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about mutations, which, again, supply sort of the raw fuel for evolutionary change. Uh, they introduce, you know, a little uh, twist in the script, and that can actually be uh, a whole new direction for a species to evolve, right? That's right, yeah. Like the pigments we've talked about or eye color or any of these other things that make up the, you know, the features that humans have, the, the outward appearance. Okay, cool. We've successfully talked about two of the four things that are affecting evolution. What are, what's the third? So the third one that's really important and we understand very well is non-random mating. So that's where... That's a in, fancy term for... for... sexual selection, which is the individuals get differences in the number of mates. Can I just put it even more bluntly and say, who gets laid? That's right. <laughs> that's all it comes down to. And, and think about humans. You know, 
we think about humans as, well, one of the most difficult things to quantify, because nobody ever tells the truth, is how <laughs> successful <laughs> individuals have been, not just at getting laid, but actually having children. Mm -hmm, right. I mean, the key is not just to reproduce, but also to have your offspring reproduce a lot. Yeah. If you're a mule, it, it doesn't do you any good to have, uh, you know, your parents, a donkey and a horse gotten together and had you because you're sterile and that's the end of the line for you. That's so, right. I mean, I didn't say that very well. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, that actually, when you think about it, that brings in the fourth force really nicely, which is migration from one area to another. And then, of course, that new migrant gene mates in, in, say, from one human population to another. And we don't know of any blocks in humans. That's what makes us all one species, right? Mm -hmm. But there are subtle differences in the way the gene pools went in the last 100,000, 200,000 years in, say, Asia versus the gene pools in North America, you know, or vice versa in Africa or Europe. And those subtle differences are actually really important for the process of evolution as we kind of begin to more homogenize across the planet. So those two things, non-random mating and this migration force, turn out to be really important for the process of human evolution. Let's stick with sexual selection for a moment, uh, non-random mating. This is something that Darwin himself uh, dreamed up, along with natural selection, as a, a second force in which it's not the environment that is selecting certain variations among the you know the population. It's actually mating decisions. That's it's right. a female or a male saying, I like you, I want to have your baby. Right. Yeah, or mutually interesting mating decisions, right? That there, hopefully there's a mutual attraction. Right. That That's quite an important force. And that's used to explain a lot of sort of sexual characteristics in brightly colored birds, the peacock, the male peacock. Supposedly he's carrying around this otherwise pretty useless baggage of the massive tail and so on in order just to impress females. That's right. Um, so Hu A human difference that we see that maybe under diminished selection would be the difference between males and females in body size. Males generally are larger, females are smaller, and it's thought that that is a sexual advantage of males in male-male combat. Males against males. That's yet another form of sexual selection. And females might choose males on the basis of you know, the, these attributes that they have that they show in male-male contests. So there's two forms of sexual selection. Uh, there's sexual selection within a sex, say male-male, mm -hmm. uh, conflicts and combat, and then there's sexual selection between the sexes. Mm -hmm. And they, they have a really interesting dynamic. And in humans, they probably had a fantastic evolutionary dynamic, you know, from the time of uh, us um, developing culture and tools and like during the Stone Age and on into the Bronze Age and Iron Age and finally the technological age that we're in now. So the fourth force you mentioned is migration. Mm -hmm. Now, how is this different from anything we've talked about before? Well, yeah, to understand migration, you have to understand the other forces that we've talked about. So if you look in different parts of the world, different mutations are kind of occurring. And right. those different mutations interact with the rest of the genes that develop humans in powerful ways. And when you take individuals from one part of the world with a different set of mutations, 
and they mate with other individuals from another part of the world, you can actually get things that we have never seen on the planet Earth. (laughs) Genetic combinations that have never been together. And uh, some of those might be um, deleterious. There are reasons why local adaptation may have favored some genes in some areas, and they don't work well with the other genes in the other areas. But they could, in fact, be spectacular and interesting combinations. Can you that think generate... of any examples? Well, um, in animals or humans. So one of the one, uh, traits that's quite well understood is how humans regulate, say, their body type, and so fat regulation and the like. And and it's it's got a fairly well worked out biochemistry. So let's say you have some individual in one part of the world where fat regulation is really important, like say for Inuit in the north. And another place where carbohydrate regulation is incredibly important. Let's say the Polynesians. Mm -hmm. And you bring those combinations together, and they have had an evolutionary history that has shaped each for completely different physiologies. And they will generate progeny on kids that are so totally different than their parents because the genes are interacting in really interesting and Never, never before seen ways. Aha! Uh-huh. Do we know the result of that? Not yet, because those um, kids are I- in this next generation, right? We've seen a, a movement of humans across the planet at uh, levels be- never before seen in humanity, right? Mm. We saw migration events during the early 1600s and 1700s and the like, but now people are fluidly moving across. Sure. And that's going to be actually the unpredictable part of evolution mm-hmm. that's that's going to really surprise us. Well, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves maybe because I wanted to, you know, get through the fundamentals before we start speculating about the future of humanity. But there is this homogenizing force at work now, racial barriers, ethnic barriers, old prohibitions against so-called intermarriage or you know, really ugly word, miscegenation. Those are all dying out and people are freely mingling. Yeah, so are we all going to become the same? We will. If we reach this <laughs> pinnacle of human evolution where culture plays a huge role. Because once people are educated, it turns out that all of those barriers, those cultural barriers, they start to dissolve away. And people really do freely intermingle and mix. And those things will go away probably within the next century if we can keep on a target of, you know, keeping the planet sort of safe from catastrophe. And once once people are basically educated across the world, all of these other things, these um, cultural barriers that stopped us from freely intermarrying will probably dissolve away. There will be many pockets where it won't ever go away, but that's just the way we are. Now, we could spend not just this show, but many shows just talking about human migration. Um, it's been very complex throughout history. It's not just under the age of sail and now, you know, jet travel. I mean, we were moving around a lot thousands of years ago. We came out of Africa. We know that now, right? Yeah. Humans migrated up through the Near East and then spread out into uh, Asia and Europe, right? And then there was a complex period of gene exchange over hundreds of thousands of years. Back and forth. Back and forth. Right. And we're getting into that incredibly politicized uh, issue of race, and I think people would probably like us to discuss that since we've talked about pigmentation, we've talked about human populations. But there is this naive idea that 
there's a group in Africa, there's a group in Europe, there's a group in Asia, there's a group in the Pacific Islands, you know, in the New World, in the, the Americas, right? But these are distinct groups, completely distinct. Right? Yeah, well, that's a misconception of the way that humans have traded in the past. And, and we actually have very good genetic evidence that that's not a good way to think about it. So over the course of human history, and now um, these are things that folks up here at UC Santa Cruz are doing, um, David Hausler's group, uh, they've been working out really interesting spreads of genes. And they're, they can identify these genes as important. And some are actually, we know, linked to the actual formation of the folds in the brain. So these are the things that give rise to human intelligence because the folding of the cortex is essentially increasing the number of neurons. That gene very clearly originated in one area, and then because it was so powerfully important from the point of view of reproduction and survival, it spread all across the world where did, rapidly. Where did it originate? They haven't tracked it down, right? Because to, to track a specific gene down is difficult. But right. this, this folding was occurring not only in the first Homo sapiens, but even in previous hominids. That's yeah. right. Most of that was contained during our you know, evolutionary history in Africa. But as soon as we broke out of Africa, which actually occurred pretty early on, then there was just this constant flow of migration. And imagine a really important gene. All it takes is one individual to bring it, uh, say, 10, 100 kilometers. It moves over the course of generations and of time. And spreads fast. And it spreads fast because it's so important. It takes over. And we've seen that happen time and time again with genes in humans. And these are genes that are quite important. So the simple idea that is uh, a racialist idea, an idea of human beings pretty much cleanly divided among a handful of races, is that there's a cluster of genes located in the dark-skinned peoples of Africa. There's a cluster of genes located at the light-skinned peoples of Europe, another cluster over in Asia, and so on and so forth. But in fact, these genes are moving all over the place, independent of geography, because human beings have moved at various times. Sure. So, so the genes are only skin deep for color, right? <laughs> so, so think about a, a gene for pigmentation. It won't spread because it's only beneficial in the equatorial regions. Mm. It won't go up to the Arctic Circle. Mm. It just has no benefit in the humans. Mm -hmm. But a gene for intelligence or some other really important um, language uh, processing or something like that will spread rapidly mm -hmm. because the kind of selection that humans are under entails that it does spread. An individual that ends up in a population with an advantage, say, in linguistic ability or what have you, ends up with a tremendous advantage from the point of view of survival or reproduction. One of the most interesting things that um, humans can do is, and it's very difficult to understand if other animals have this capability, they can get into another human's head. These are the mind games, right? We really have a part of our brain that's actually running in the background just to process what the other person is thinking. What you are thinking, Robert Poli. I'm staring at you, looking at your eyes, and you're wondering, you know, what I'm thinking too. And sometimes we speak it out, but most of the time, all our motives are all hidden. And so we're constantly trying to figure out these games that others are playing. And that is under tremendous selection. Sexual selection and natural selection and social selection. You said is under, and I, I want to save that big issue for just slightly later in the interview, which is how much of this is still operating in our cushy modern world where we aren't dying off all the time, we aren't killing each other off all the time, I mean, under ideal circumstances. 
let's stay though with the 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 issue of um pigmentation and race for a moment and i just wanted to say you might know something about this i wish i had the information at my fingertips but i have also read that not only did people migrate north and get paler you know tens of thousands of years ago but some migrated back south and got darker again so the idea that you meet a dark-skinned person, their ancestry is just directly, you can draw a straight line to some equatorial region. Not true either. No, you get this movement, mass migration. Right. Let's say you had some event occur in some northern climate. And this is, in my ancestry, Finns uh, have been kind of an enigma to figure out. But Finns <laughs> are fairly well documented to have um, uh, arisen in the Ural Mountains, and so it's the Uralic language group. And they spread all across the north in both directions. But a big chunk of them ended up in Hungary. And those people are actually quite a bit dark, dark, darker skin than the average Finn. So they probably picked it up. But it was probably picking it up from gene flow, you know, the migration of genes from adjacent populations. And the Hungarians have a Uralic language group. So they move considerably further south, close to the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Wow. So we've talked about the four forces that, you know, influence evolution, natural selection, uh, mutation, uh, sexual selection, and migration. And is social selection, which we also mentioned earlier in the interview, that is just general social forces that, you know, kill off some people, allow other people to procreate, um, whether it's various forms of enslavement, racism, murder, genocide, or just more subtle forces, you know, that either favor or disfavor certain kinds of people. Uh, is that a fifth category? In some ways it is, because not all animals are as social as humans, right? Right. Uh, some are, like bees and wasps have really cool social organizations, and birds have all kinds of cool social organizations. Lizards have tremendous social organizations. Where you get animals that actually build up into these social structures, you, you generate the possibility for social selection. So let's work our way up to the present. The question that is on a lot of people's minds, what's in store for the human species going forward? But let's go to the more recent past. Um, a lot of geneticists uh, and, and evolutionary biologists have been studying, you know, so-called recent human evolution, that is last mm, five to 10,000 years. And they've discovered that indeed some really important things have sprung up in that time. One that I know of, uh, and you can add to this list, I'm sure, is lactose tolerance. So our ancestors long ago didn't drink milk as adults. You know, once they were weaned off the teat, that was it for milk, right? But at some point, maybe 3,000 or so years ago, they started domesticating sheep and cows and goats and milking them. And then any mutation for uh, the ability to digest lactose, right, that sugar that's in milk, became a huge advantage. And among those populations, you started to get lactose tolerance. That's right. So this one's pretty easy to understand. Um, everybody has lactose, right, early on because we all feed off of the mother's milk. Right. And then what happens is that if a gene isn't being used, let's say in adulthood, it actually builds up mutations that probably shut it off. But that's actually beneficial because to produce a gene unnecessarily is something you just don't want the system doing. And so a mutation that shuts it off is advantageous. But in the case of lactose, 
if you essentially uh, have a source of lactose that's a huge protein source for you, as happened when human agriculture spread all the way across Europe, then that gene is going to be beneficial. And the migration of agriculture, just the whole concept of it, along with the people that migrated with it, if you think about it, individuals that had diarrhea because they couldn't digest milk as they were moving animals around would actually die. Mm. And so there's very strong selection during this phase in which agriculture spread. So that pretty much most people in Europe have the condition where they're lactose tolerant as opposed to lactose intolerant. Like my ancestors um, in Finland, they all are drinking milk and the like, maybe from a different source, from reindeer, right? <laughs> but agriculture generates that force. Now, another really interesting one is starch. It turns out that if you look at humans, the number of copies of this gene that breaks up starches, the amylases, is many times duplicated in those populations that actually have huge starch sources. Uh -huh. So that's yet another one of those. Food sources that we have generate a powerful force of selection. Now, another one that I would imagine would be extremely powerful is disease and disease resistance that results, you know, that is selected for when an epidemic sweeps through a population. Oh, all of the diseases of the malarial mosquitoes uh, generate a powerful force in humans such that there are all these mutations that appear on the face of it deleterious, like sickle cell anemia and the like, but those actually protect individuals that have one normal copy of the gene and one copy of this mutant gene from being infected by malarial mosquitoes. And all around the Mediterranean, there are different mutations for these genes against malarial mosquitoes, like Tay-Sachs disease and the like in, in the Jewish populations. There's just a lot of selection that occurs in response to disease. Right, right. Smallpox, uh, European populations developed some resistance when they came over to the Americas. They infected the native, the indigenous peoples who died off at much higher rates, right? Think about that event when you think about, you know, natural selection in the last three, four, five hundred years. It's thought that maybe 90% of all of the population of the Americas went away during that one event. And all we're left with is a fragment of that original population. That's tremendous selection that occurred in the historic times. And we would think that modern-day descendants of the indigenous peoples who survived probably do have greater smallpox resistance, uh, resistance to some of these diseases. And that's for sure true. And maybe they got it from actually not directly right away. They might have just made it through that little period. But then they essentially formed marriages with the colonizers, and so they probably got some protection hmm. from that fourth process, right, the migration and movement of genes. Is there another evolutionary force, uh, one called genetic drift? Yeah, so um, genetic drift isn't really like a force, though, because it's a random process. Right. We think about, about there being the forces of evolution and this fifth thing. Well, now I've talked about the four <laughs> forces plus social selection and genetic drift. Uh -huh. Now, genetic drift is the, the random process that builds up differences between populations that are essentially on independent trajectories where they're not exchanging genes. Mm -hmm. So the kinds of mutations that built up and sort of drifted through the population in the Americas are totally different than those that drifted through the population in, say, Asia or um, Africa or Europe. Right. And it is different from natural selection because 
These are changes that aren't necessarily good or bad. They just sort of, as a result of statistics, you know, random random forces are found more in one place than in another place. Small populations tend to have more random forces, right? Because if you have a population of two, you can imagine that you can quickly lose information, genetic information from the system Mm -hmm. when there's only two individuals. Mm -hmm. As you build up to the big populations of a million, genetic drift turns out to be trivial. It doesn't really influence things. So it's really important for very small populations, which was typical for much of human evolution as we had these small hunter-gatherer bands kind of moving across the landscape. Well, let's go to the present now. Uh, The big question of how and whether human beings are still evolving There's a simple line of thinking that goes something like this, and I think you've already suggested it in our conversation, that in the last mm, 100 years, especially the last 50 or so years, we've gotten so good at at essentially compensating for any kind of innate disadvantages, whether it be ill health or disabilities of various kinds, uh, whether it be what used to be considered social disadvantages or even fertility problems, which used to be a showstopper in evolution. (laughs) If you could not have kids, that was the end of the line for your genes, right? But we've overcome that with in vitro fertilization and other technologies. So this line of thinking says we have canceled all the forces of natural selection. We have pretty much done away with it, and we've got this very... Uh, sort of freewheeling society where everybody can find a mate. Anybody who wants to can have a lot of kids. So evolution, therefore, has stopped. Yeah, well, like I said earlier on, if you have exactly two kids, everybody, and everybody survives to the same age, then then natural selection would stop. Right. Right, because there's no differences. See, natural selection requires that there be differences in the number of mates that individuals get. And yet we know that there are many individuals born that are actually, they, they don't actually have the two social parents that they have. One of them may be their proper parent, but there's what we call in the trade an extra pair copulation, which means a little hanky-panky. <laughs> <laughs> and some individuals have huge families, right? With right. lots of kids, right? So, right? And some individuals essentially don't have any families. So human beings are still reproducing at different rates, is what you're saying. Yeah. And some people's genes are being spread around more than other people's genes. That's right. But it's not the result of sort of a fierce sort of selective mechanism that's really killing off or preventing uh, people from reproducing, like in the old days, right? That's right. I mean, we've, we have this relaxation in terms of s- certain diseases that are being winnowed out, and that's just, I mean, a product of our cultural evolution that we have this advanced medicine. But that still doesn't mean that we're not selecting other individuals, right? This, this force of social selection is pretty powerful right now in certain regions, in hotspots. Um, and it's going to become even worse if we bring ourselves to the brink of sort of a global collapse, say, with climate change and the like. Oh, well, social selection in this case is kind of a euphemism for genocides and, you know, massive That's bloodletting. Right. That's of, right. Of or kinds. war, any any right. forms of war or whatever that occurs and that may occur. And there are some important papers that were published just uh, a couple of years ago in, in Nature, in the journal Nature, about the incidence of war outbreak is actually on the rise in equatorial regions of the world. 
And what that means is that there are more skirmishes and the timing of these skirmishes appears to coincide beautifully with the drought events that are driven by the intensification of uh, you know, El Nino that we are, we're quite familiar with here on the West Coast. May I say that your definition of beauty is a little different from mine? Ah, yeah. Well, it's an <laughs> ugly fact, but it's, it's, it's really quite nice that we can actually be able to see the causes of some of these things that we usually think of as due to political problems or what have you come right down to food supply. Right. And, right. The, and the decrease in food supply. So what we have to realize is that there's a fairly simple solution to that. We really have to figure out a way to equitably distribute the planet's resources to stabilize human economies so we don't bring ourselves to that point of collapse where social selection, the euphemism that's used for those really dark forces of human nature right, right. that pop out. But they, they are still at work in wars and genocides and uh, ethnic cleansings uh, such that, yeah, they do change the frequency of certain genes in the population. Yeah. When an ethnic group is killed, killed off in large numbers, Obviously, any genes that are associated with that group are going to be less common in the future. Yeah. So this is kind of an accidental um, – it's not random, but this really is not a directional process that leads to a better adapted human species. This is just some nasty thing that results in, in, in genetic, you know, it genetic could be. selection. That, that for sure could be. Now we're getting into the realm of speculation. Yeah. It's thought that just broadly written technology – now, technology, I define broadly, right? Stone tools are technology. Agriculture is technology. Writing in books is technology. Higher technology, of course. Sending a man to the moon is technology. All of that. It's thought that why humans have increased in intelligence so greatly over the last um, uh, few hundred thousand years, almost exponentially, you know, in terms of the increase in capacity that we have. Now, is, you, know, you, mean, you mean the big jump that Homo sapiens made. That's right. Uh, relative to other hominids. That's right. You do not mean that we have been getting steadily smarter. Not uh, since. No, the... I think we made a, a huge, a huge leap. Right, right. Back then. Okay. Um, that's all brought about by technology, right? And the technological advantage of one group against another. It's like a bit of an arms race. Uh -huh. Now that is still probably clicking away. Let's let's make it clear that when you say that it, leap in intelligence is brought about by technology. What you mean is the advent of technology created a new selective pressure that favored smarter, uh, a smarter species. An arms race. Right. In intelligence. Right, right. That's right. You don't mean that technology was going in and altering our genes directly. No, no. No, no it's not. just this feedback process right. that um, individuals and groups that had higher forms of technology would actually be doing better. And even if it wasn't like in a, you know, uh, uh, genocide sort of a way. They simply would displace them by their growth rate, and their genes would be moved out by the force of migration, right, and, and spread. And so that force is still present. I, 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 I do believe that there is this subtle force. And, and it can be seen in fairly simple ways. When you think about, there, there's so many kinds of human intelligence, right? There's a natural history kind of intelligence, the hunter-gatherer kind of t type. Maybe I, I like to think I'm, I'm good at catching lizards because I still am in touch with that natural history. But there's all this mathematical intelligence and musical intelligence. Emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. All of these things mm -hmm. are, I think, under fairly strong selection. Well, to make that argument, you'd have to say that 
people possessing those kinds of intelligence are going to have more kids. They're going to have more successful kids. Some people well, may you mean have... Their, their kids are going to have more kids. They... That that their kids' kids will have. It's more all kids. a game of numbers. That's right. It but, is. So you know there is this counter argument that you know these days anybody who wants to can have a lot of kids, and in fact, um, and I don't want to believe me. I want to say right off the bat, I don't want to sound like a eugenicist type person because that's not me. But there are people who point out that birth rates correlate negatively with education. You know, the more you go to college, the fewer kids you want to have, and uh, that doesn't mean smart. You know, going to college doesn't mean you're actually intelligent. That's, but, a, that's a great point. Yeah. So let me contrast that because we know that's purely cultural. Okay. Right? So there's this cultural artifice that we right. have that if you increase women's into, um, uh, level of education, right. it turns out they have fewer kids. Right. So it's really just a purely cultural kind of an effect. But across the broad swath of humanity, you know, I think that what we're going to see is that this process is still ongoing. And it can be quite nice, and it, but it can be quite ugly. But it's all driven by intelligence and technology and all that, if we're, if we're evolving. I don't think we're evolving to be stupider. I don't think so. Because we place too many social games that have really interesting social and biological outcomes. So you think, um, you know, to, t to talk from a male perspective, you think the smart guys get the girls more often? Not strictly the smart ones, but let's say um, it, there's a, a tendency probably in the past, and I, do, I see no reason why that should be any different now, right? I, now, having five kids versus two kids or whatever, that those are differences that show up in modern society. Yeah, I mean, I, I must admit that I'm, I'm sort of prejudiced on the side of the argument that we have neutralized a lot of those selective mechanisms because... Cultural forces have replaced them. So again, you know, who has the most kids and who chooses to, and how those kids do depends a whole lot more on varying cultural norms and uh, and trends than it does on any kind of innate, you know, advantage or disadvantage. Well, let's think about this, Robert. We live in the blink of an eye, right? Mm -hmm. And um, the forces that we're up against right now uh, could be completely changed in 200 years as the Absolutely. climate warming forces hit and change sure. everything that we're the whole playing field or a disease and, could change everything and yeah. disease all of yeah. those things yeah and so those those you know forces of of nature um are likely to keep imposing strong selection and, and i don't think that the dumb ones are going to make it out of that i really think that the highly cooperative, collaborative types are the ones that are going to actually do fairly well. Uh, we are entering a very speculative realm. Let's face it, we're both talking out of our butts in a way. Yeah, we're trying to predict the future. <laughs> we're, we're, we're trying to be Nostradamus. And others have done so too. And uh, not to cast any aspersions, but there was a recent article that sort of stimulated me to have this conversation with you. Uh, actually, a pair of articles published by a Stanford geneticist, uh, Gerald Crabtree. And this got a lot of press. Uh, and this is a highly speculative article saying that he would imagine that human beings have been getting dumber because our ancestors, our hunter-gatherer ancestors, faced much stiffer pressures, obviously. Uh, you know, it was a much tougher environment and that the kind of intelligence that they needed to survive by their wits, you know, let's say on the savanna, uh, is a lot greater than we need to survive in our, you know, 
spoiled modern environment. Now, let me take that challenge on. <laughs> okay. We've created our own environment that's far more complex and challenging than the, the savanna environment. But it doesn't kill us to be dumb. Yeah, but it does change who you end up with, and it changes like who who your likely mating partners are going to be. And, and that has a potent uh, effect on sexual selection. Yeah, so I'm I'm of the opinion that the forces that have occurred in the past, I see no reason why they're changing as dramatically as Crabtree suspects they are. And this other paper that you raised, the the study on the Finnish um, genealogy. Oh, that's one I discussed. I uh, you and I uh, exchanged emails before the show, and and there was another study. Yeah, What's, yeah. Tell us about that one. Well, this has actually a, been a kind of a boon to scientists because the Finns have an incredible genealogy. That's largely because they had the Lutheran Church kind of registering all the births and deaths that occurred. And so you could figure out this really cool selection. How many kids did individuals have when they died? All of this that was occurring. And Crabtree's argument is that, well, since the hunter-gatherer times, the Finns, the Finnish data set shows, um, this was by Bayer and a number of other authors, that data set shows that very clearly the selection that was occurring on modern farming sorts of cultures is every bit as likely to be as intense as that that occurred in hunter-gatherers. Intense? Now why? Intense. Why? Because you have famines and things that oh, are Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it, it, you really do actually have these boom and bust conditions that um, can generate knife-edged kinds of selection. And do we know that they were selective with respect to actually inheritable traits? We're not far really away from that. Okay. Because once we, let's say you take another group, the Icelanders, they have most of their genomes under the process of mapping. If you took that and applied it to the Finnish data set, then with modern computational techniques, you could actually right. see all that selection. Of course, that was back in the days when life was tough, um, and it's not nearly as tough now. Would you think... Well, you think it is. But we're living in the time of plenty, right? Right. And we've just gone through several world wars a century ago, and and we're looking at a future that's quite uncertain, and and droughts and famine oh, things, are coming in. Things and, are coming, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I am speaking from the privileged position <clears throat> of a modern uh, uh, American, and that is not the case for a lot of people in the world. Yeah, uh, th eight, think about that. That's a really good point that you make. 80% of the world's people live completely differently than we do. But would you think, Barry, though, as, again, um, technology spreads and some modern comforts do spread, uh, in fact, infant mortality rates are down in many parts of the world, not just the developed world, mm -hmm. um, that things are going to slow down as a result of that. I mean, in the old ah, days... Oh, well, let me take that one. Okay. This is quite interesting. I, I mean, in the old days, let me yeah. just clarify that in the old days, the selective pressure, that is, the things that would kill you or prevent you from reproducing or kill your children, were so plentiful that, you know, evolution was operating at a very rapid rate, let's say. Now I would think, oh, you know, you can get by in so many different ways. You can survive and reproduce that it might be ticking along, but much more slowly. Well, let's think about this. Okay. This, um, the advent of modern medicine, because you really have to think through this fairly carefully to think about chains of causation that may be occurring. But let's say that there is a premium placed on brain size and brain folding and the like. And what we've done with modern medicine is instantly we've gotten rid of all of the problems that occur because the head is actually too big for the pelvic girdle. Instantly we we did that. With that one big change, we may have actually effectuated just this little bit of a 
I'm not saying quantum jump, but we relax selection against large brain size that okay. was occurring. I'm going to you know, just unpack what you said a moment ago. You're saying that though intelligence uh, you know, reflected in, in brain size and thus head size may have always been an advantage, there was a counteracting force, which was that that head had to get through the pelvic girdle of a mom giving birth. And if it was too big... The baby was going to die. The bomb was going to die. Yeah. And now that's no longer the problem. That's right. Because we, we have cesarean sections. Cesarean sections get rid of it. Yeah. Not only that, we also have a, a benefit uh, that's just purely nutritional, right? Moms get much better nutrition, and the babies are larger, and their brain sizes are larger. So, so we get rid of that problem. But there was probably this countervailing force that we had actually come up against, probably a limit that was holding the human potential back. And instantly it was lifted. <laughs> So I remember as a science fiction reading kid uh, that all of the books I was reading and the movies I was watching uh, imagined that our heads would keep getting bigger, that we wouldn't need our bodies much, so they'd keep getting thinner until we were finally just sort of brains on sticks. Well, I think it's going to go the other way. <laughs> <laughs> I think that dystopian view of the future that Wally, remember the little robot presented us with by and large, is probably going to catch up to us. So we'll have these cartoon like tiny heads on big, fat, gorged bodies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would think, though, that if, the, if, if there were any particular human traits where evolution, where natural selection was really, really operating, it would be right at the business end, which is fertility. That is, whoever produces more offspring, those genes, uh, you know, those genes obviously become more plentiful. So a gene that makes you have more kids is obviously going to be the most uh, plentiful gene of all, right? Sure. Is there anything counteracting that? And why aren't human beings just becoming, you know, huge fertility machines w yeah. without medical help? I mean, the yeah. Octomom is really just the beginning. Yeah, well, you know, um, human fertility is, is really interesting because um, if you think about having a very large family, that's one strategy you could have, right? These are the way we talk about things in biology, different strategies, reproductive strategies. Having like one or two kids, two kids, say, um, and actually... The thing about humans that has happened is that for about 18 years now, during from birth to 18 years old, the brain is growing and changing developmentally, right? And so we have now evolved this period of growth where no other animal has 18 full years till the age of independence. I mean, you can have kids that are giving birth at 13 years old, but we actually have this very greatly delayed maturation for a reason, so we can pump all kinds of information into our kids. It's called and, neoteny, right? That's right, yeah. And so you imagine that there's a family that has two versus a family that has five. The resources that the family of two have, all else being equal, to be able to potentially send their, both of their kids to university to, to a better world, okay. is probably much, much greater. Uh, so, so you're saying that we won't just become more and more, you know, reproductive, in that way. No, yeah. I think it go, kind of goes against the person. fundamental aspect okay. of human nature and development, okay. that we do need this period. Though there are people that are with incredible fertility, right? for sure. Right, but if, if that were true, though, what, that speculation I just had that, you know, a gene that makes you have more babies, you know, would just spread through the population like wildfire, well, that would have happened a long time ago if that were true. That's right, and yeah. humans and all the primates and the yeah. great apes have all been selected. Right. 
to a, a very different reproductive set. Absolutely. I mean, we could yeah. have ended up like fish, you know, laying 10,000 eggs. That's right. But <laughs> Yeah, we don't do that. Now, the the flip side of that question is there's the fertility question, but then how do you find a partner with which you're genetically compatible? It turns out that if you look at genetic well-studied populations like the Hutterites, which is a small religious sect in sort of the Great Plains and into Canada, people have looked at the genetics of the the genes that individuals share in partners, uh, married couples, and it turns out that those that have genes for a very specific set of genes, which are called the major histocompatibility complex, those are genes that fight off diseases. It turns out they're selected for completely different sets of alleles. Wait, wait, wait. So that means alleles? That alleles. These are the <laughs> copies of the genes. So they're selected for completely different genetics, right? One it partner is carrying one set of genes, the other is carrying the other set. And if they don't have that, then what happens is they tend to actually have a higher divorce rate. And they actually tend to have more progeny that are um, miscarried or various other things. So very subtle things like, you know, you think about like successful fertility, right? Yeah that the genetic compatibility between two people right. is under very strong selection in the here and now so that you end up finding a partner with which you're going to produce fairly well-adjusted, developmentally wonderful kids. So now, you've just made a, a conceptual leap that I want to pounce on. Yeah. You're saying that, you know, when there's so much pressure to select a mate that's genetically compatible that in fact some ability to detect that compatibility has entered our behavior. Yeah, that's really okay. cool, Robert. Uh, and uh, if, you, if you were to take my behavioral ecology class, and <laughs> others have, like um, I have a number of people, like a retired doctor just took it this year. He just sits in on the lectures. It's like a, an instruction manual for the human condition, and I describe all of those cool things. Like we have, you know, inside our noses a special organ that allows us to actually see into the partner's genome, as it will, like their genetic makeup, what's going to be good for us? Is this the vomeronasal? Vomeronasal organ. And this is right. a really good smeller Yeah, that can sniff out, uh, I mean, obviously it's not directly sniffing the DNA, but what is it doing? It's, it's picking up um, compounds that are present, you know, like across our bodies, right? Like in our armpits and all the interesting oils that we secrete and pheromones, and and it's integrating it, and it goes directly into our brain, in the region of our brain where the endocrine system controls our reproductive decision making. Wow! And is it um, bamboozled by things like Axe body spray? Probably. As I tell my students, you want to bathe, but not put all that perfumey stuff on, because then you'll find your true love. Barry, is this is this conjecture, or has this been more or less demonstrated? This has been demonstrated at a genetic level, that humans have very strong preferences for these sorts of compounds as a function of the genes that they carry and the genes that the sense that presented we, to them. That we are smelling genetically compatible mates. We think... It's the poetry they wrote to us, you know, when we were first, uh, you know, courting. We think it's the look in their beautiful eyes. We think it's some other magic, but it's actually their smell. Ah, uh, well, it, the, <laughs> there's there's a lot of room for poetry, right? Because think about that other stuff as being 
ah, this partner that I find not that's just genetically compatible, but culturally compatible, right? This is the beauty of it. They, they like poetry or they like, you know, a beautiful sunset, right? So all that stuff is... All that stuff is important. This right. is just one part of the decision okay. making. And, and and then, you know, in terms of the behavioral element, um, the idea that these subtle genetic forces could be at work on our actual, the actual way we sort of make decisions and see the world... You mentioned that these Hutterites have higher divorce rates if they've made bad genetic choices. That's right. Breakup rates, bad choices. What's the uh, mechanism of that? Well, that's probably, let's say, they have progeny and they have multiple miscarriages. That triggers okay, okay. That, that triggers yeah. that event, right? Well, that, yeah, that yeah. would explain that. It. That's the fundamental genetic incompatibility yeah. that now modern technology might be able to reverse right. with fertility clinics, right? right? So we've talked about a lot of things that may be influencing the direction of human evolution going forward. Um, it still seems to me, though, that outweighing all of these factors, probably, if we continue to develop technologically, will be our conscious choices about what we want our kids to be. That's right. You know, we'll begin to meddle with the genome. Uh, we've already meddled with fertility. Um, there's just a lot of ways in which we're going to reshape our own species. That's right. You think... If, again, we don't have some huge technological setback, which could happen, asteroid hits, we're all back mm -hmm. in the Stone Age. But if we don't, we look ahead 500,000 years, is our species more likely to be shaped by those subtle invisible forces we've talked about or by sort of human manipulation? I think that um, a thousand years from now, we will have made the leap to the stars, and during that one event... Individuals that went and leapt to the stars will be so different from the individuals that are left behind, simply by the fact that to be able to do that requires the ability to integrate and handle technological um, forces that have never really even been seen now. And when we make that leap a thousand years from now, I really do have this um, view. That is that migration event to the stars. But by that point, we are going to be consisting, uh, I think, it, in large part of man-made hardware and man-made, let's say, wetware, which is, you know, uh, biological material that yeah. we've shaped ourselves, right? Yeah. That's right. We live in a, we're living in the environment that's completely uh, uh, produced by our own um, hands. Uh -huh. It's a completely synthetic world. But that's what we're setting ourselves up for with technological advances. Will we still need evolutionary biologists like you at that point? Well, yeah, I'd like to think so. If we're <laughs> heading out to the stars, we want to know what sort of a planet we're heading to and what kind of cool life forms are out there, too. Speaking of planets, I wanted to end this conversation by going back to a subject you and I discussed two years ago. Your specialty is actually not human beings. It's lizards, uh, lizard evolution. Um, and you had published an article, uh, you and some colleagues had published an article that had gotten worldwide uh, media attention because of its rather dire findings that lizard populations around the world in various locations and various kinds of habitats were disappearing, were going extinct, and that it correlated very tightly with rises in temperature. Mm -hmm. So it appeared yeah. very strongly that global warming was killing off lizards Lizards being pretty heat tolerant. Yeah. Uh, you talk about canaries in a coal mine. This is a lot of canaries in a lot of coal mines. That's right. Um, what's happened since then? Well, um, we've expanded our work to amphibians, and what we're finding is that the areas of the world where those sensitive organisms are going extinct 
are actually changing in many more ways than just uh, those animals going extinct. The entire ecosystems appear to be unraveling. Now, what do we see as indication of that? If we go to any of those extinction sites that we identified, if you go near them, you'll see that the trees are actually starting to die. But if you go someplace where there are still lizards, the trees are actually doing okay. So we're actually starting to see at a global scale the ecosystems beginning to unravel under the force of climate change. Now, that's going to be incredibly difficult to predict. So we're also working furiously on ways to be able to predict the future under the change of climate change. So I'm working on a lot of mathematical models to try to predict the pace of change and how it'll impact fairly complex ecosystems. You got no good news for us, do you? No, there's no good news. In fact, if you look at Every one of the climate projections, you know, the IPCC comes out with its first assessment, second assessment. They're not coming into this new fifth assessment, and they're actually considering that there are these exponential increases in CO2 production and temperature. And so we'll be into um, the zone in which we've never seen temperatures on the planet Earth in several million years. Uh, you mean in the past several past million years? Past se several million years, and we're just going to see that in the next couple of hundred Ah, well, I won't be there to see it, and I'm kind of glad, huh? Yeah, well, that's uh, <laughs> the 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 only thing we have to think about is the future that we leave, the children of the planet. So I guess we can wrap this back into our conversation about human evolution and speculate further that uh, in 100, 200 years, they will have even less hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They will have even better sweat glands. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> or really good technology or at really the equator. Good, really good air conditioning. That's right. Oh, boy. And I, I don't think that we'll weather it unless we have really good cooperation and collaboration, which will allow, you know, the the outbreak of war, which as resources become restricted for people, and, and I really do worry about, you know, uh, it's not just for people in the third world. It's going to hit them incredibly hard. But that's just going to destabilize the world economies, right? And it'll spread all across the world. The world's going to be a very different place if we don't act hmm. soon. And hmm. that's all about, you know, getting together and collaborating and cooperating. Yeah. Well, here's hoping. And thanks a lot, Barry. Really, yeah, my really pleasure. appreciate My it. pleasure, Robert. Anytime. Barry Sinervo is a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at UC Santa Cruz. Oh, and uh, for you online listeners, a bonus question that I put to Barry Sinervo after the official interview was over. Here it is. Um, Barry, we've been sort of talking about human evolution uh, as though this species of ours, Homo sapiens, could gradually morph in one direction or another or in multiple directions in different places. But we're not talking about a new species, there is something called speciation, where the changes are so enormous that a population has undergone that they're no longer, at some point, the same species. They can't even interbreed with the stock that they originally came from. Um, tell us about speciation and, 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 and when we might no longer even be talking about Homo sapiens at all. That's almost like a philosophical discussion uh -huh. about how much change will humans have to accumulate before we consider them different? Right. And clearly, we can look at benchmarks, right? We saw that Neanderthals were quite different, and yet 
the thinking was that they may have even been able to interbreed. And There's yet, evidence we, of that, that that's there right. was hanky-panky between right. Homo sapiens and And we're getting more and more genetic evidence of that <laughs> as people go into the fossil DNA. Yeah. So, so we clearly said that the Homo neanderthalus were a different species when we say Homo neanderthalus and Homo sapiens. But, but there's a very blurry line. Right. But speciation is a really interesting question because of that. With Homo neanderthalus and Homo sapiens, uh, maybe they're subspecies. Maybe they're two subspecies, right? Sure. You could go back and revise right, that whole right. part of it. With the genetic evidence, you could say they are just subspecies, right? So they're just different subtle differences that are not important from the point of view of a block. Right. Yeah. But it's not so arbitrary, this uh, threshold that is crossed sooner or later where you can no longer interbreed. Because once you can no longer interbreed, then you can really split off in radically new directions. Sure, yeah. Right? Because yeah. you're cut off from each other. That's right. At the and time, your genes are no longer mixing all the time. That's right. At the time that you know, uh, Homo sapiens evolved, there were likely to be three or four, maybe even five different Homo on the planet. There was Homo floresinensis, which was a tiny, like, hobbit thing in the Indonesian archipelago. There was probably Homo erectus, which was gave rise to Homo floresinensis, which was the archaic form of man, right? And then there were Homo neanderthalus in several species types, and then Homo sapiens sapiens. Right. So there was a point in human evolution where we came into being that there was greater diversity of species. If only we could have seen how they got along together. That's right. Oh, boy. Yeah, that would have been fly on the wall, <laughs> fly on the cave wall. And this has been the 7th Avenue Project, Ever Evolving. I'm your host, Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. And, of course, we're online at all times at 7thAvenueProject.com.